You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. When I was a kid, I thought I was really good at hockey. Like a little kid. I thought I was really good. I remember there was a time when I could skate but didn't know how to stop. And the only way I would stop was running into the boards. And then I learned to stop and it's like, oh, I'm really good. I remember there was a time where I didn't know how to take a wrist shot or lift the puck off the ice, and then I could take a wrist shot, and I thought, oh, I'm really good. And as I grew up, and I was able to actually pay money to go and see real, see real men play hockey, um, I actually saw what good hockey was like. And in some pro teams during intermissions, they have like little peewee teams come out and play. I remember one time going to a pro game and seeing these peewee teams come out, and it's like, oh, that's what I was like when I was a kid. And usually in these peewee games, you see there's like one kid who absolutely dominates and is way better than the other ones. And their game's only like five minutes long during the intermission and it's cute and you want the teams to score and usually one team gets one goal. But eventually when the five minutes is up, it's like, all right, kids, that was cute, but have a seat because it's now time for the pros to play. We live in a culture, it's not surprising that in a culture where the name of Jesus is treated as either a curse word or used as the name for a new ice cream shop, it's not surprising that that's the same attitude that our world looks at towards Christianity. Yeah, you hide your time influencing culture, but you have this ancient, out-of-touch faith. Have a seat, kids. Let the modern people who really know what it's like to be modern thinkers play now. I'm opening up my Bible to John chapter 18. The passage you heard read is the part of the passage that we're going to be considering today. During this Easter season, we're going to look at the story of the cross through the eyes of a skeptical man, the man Pontius Pilate who sentenced Jesus Christ to death. And we're going to see in him throughout these next several services that we have over the next couple weeks, attitudes of skepticism and indifference and conflict that I believe are actually still reflected in our culture today. And in seeing the attitudes of Pilate, we're going to be able to ask honest questions about Christianity that maybe you've never been able to ask before, that maybe you've wondered before and you want an answer to. Or maybe people in your school or work have asked these questions and you just don't know how to honestly answer them. This Easter is about looking at the gospel through the eyes of a skeptic. And today, we're going to seek, Lord willing, to answer the question, is Christianity even relevant to anymore? Pilate dismissed truth. Our culture dismisses truth. Do they actually have a reason to dismiss Jesus and his truth? Well, knowing that this is where we're going, let's take a moment to pray and ask that God would help us in our time. Father in heaven, we turn our attention towards you. And in this moment, I am glad to humble myself, recognizing that you are a God enthroned as king. You are creator who I, we believe made the world and everything in it, including us in your own image. Lord, thank you that your son Jesus came from heaven to earth and fully revealed who you are and who we are and what this world is like and how we should live. Lord God, thank you that you've positioned us in this city at, in this time so that we can be ambassadors for you. 
Thank you for our city. Thank you for the people who live in this city. Lord, help us to be faithful witnesses to Christ and to understand the significance of Christianity for the way that we live today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in John chapter 18. We're gonna consider verse 28 to verse 38. And really being able or trying to answer this question, is Christianity relevant today? What we're going to do is read the story and gather the facts about this interaction between Pilate and Jesus. And then from those facts, we're gonna try and discern an answer to our question. And then once we've done that, we're gonna look at that answer and deduce what its meaning is for the way that we live our lives today. So, in John chapter 18, we see a, the trial of Jesus. And the judge who's presiding over this trial is Pontius Pilate. And Pontius is trying to, Pontius Pilate is trying to judge, really, he's trying to judge if Jesus was a threat to the Romans. Let's look at the passage together, verse 28 to verse 33. Then they, that's the Jews, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what, but what, by what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said, are you the king of the Jews? The night before this trial started, Jesus had just been arrested by the Jews with help from Roman soldiers. And when the Jews arrive at Pilate's headquarters, it seems like this is the first time that Pilate and the Jews are interacting, but likely it's actually the second time. See, in order to arrest Jesus with Roman soldiers, the Jews would have had to acquire authorization from the Roman governor, Pilate, to use his soldiers to go and arrest Jesus. And if he was gonna authorize them to use his soldiers, he would have had to know why. So when Pilate asks, what accusations did you bring against this man? The Jews kind of like respond like confused, like if we brought him here, it would have been for a purpose, right? They're actually like wondering like, wait, wait, Pilate, we talked about this already. It's not that Pilate forgot about the conversation. Pilate's actually likely intentionally antagonizing him because this guy history paints as a real bully. In the first century, Israel was an occupied state under control of the Roman government, and Pontius Pilate, this governor, or the technical term that he had was prefect, this prefect was a representative for the Roman emperor in the province where the Jews lived. He was a representative for the Roman emperor of the time named Tiberius. And historical, non-Christian biographical material really paints Pilate as this vicious, vicious tyrant. He was the type of guy who would, uh, was an authoritarian ruler. He would regularly infringe on religious liberties just because he disliked minorities and it gave him a laugh. 
Uh, on one occasion, he actually financially embezzled money that was given by the Jews and designated for the temple, and he took that so that he could build his own infrastructure. Several occasions, when people would stand up to his authority, he had no problem sending his army and slaughtering dozens. So, this is the man that Jesus is interacting with. And Pilate opens up the trial and wants to know, is he a threat? Are you the king of the Jews? Because Rome is occupying Jewish land. But if a king has arisen in Jew, in, of the Jews, that could be a threat to Roman occupation. So he wants to know, is this guy really a threat? Does he have some time of militaristic power? And should I put him in his place to show how powerful we really are? So Jesus responds in verse 33, verse 34. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or do others say it about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus asked this question to consider, like, do you have any personal stake in this? Like, do others say it about me or, or do you think I'm actually a king? And others maybe did, might have said it about him. See, Pilate's headquarters, his, his normal headquarters wasn't in Jerusalem where they were right now. It was in another town called Caesarea. He didn't like the Jews at all and really didn't like spending time in the Jewish lands. But during special Jewish feasts, like the one the Jews were observing at this time called the Passover, he knew he had to come there because there was going to be like, crowds and parades, and if there's going to be any uprising, he was going to put it down immediately. And at the beginning of this Passover, maybe you remember, on that day we called Palm Sunday, Jesus was paraded into Jerusalem, and people were waving palm branches and saying, Hail the Son of David. So maybe Pilate heard, oh, people think he's the king of the Jews. But Jesus asked him, do you say this because you think so, or because others think so? But Pilate doesn't want to like, present himself as having any personal stake in it. He's just like, listen, your own nation handed you over to me. I'm, I just want to be an unbiased judge. Just tell me, what did you do? And so Jesus obliges him in verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over the, to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. See, Jesus says he has a kingdom and he has servants, but they're really not fighting now because his kingdom is from another world. In a manner of speaking, Jesus tells Pilate, I'm not a militaristic threat. But Pilate hears the word kingdom and he says, aha, are you a king? But Jesus isn't, isn't really concerned about titles. He's concerned about his purpose. And he tells Pilate his purpose in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. If you ever want to know Christ's purpose, why he came to earth, here it is. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus claims that his life on earth represents a transcendent kingdom. Uh, you might call it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And that his purpose was to come from this heavenly domain <clears throat> in, into the domain of man to tell the heavenly message. The kingdom of God as it exists now is not a geographical place, 
but it's a spiritual culture. The kingdom of God is a spiritual culture where the people of God are guided by the word of God following the way of God. And the result of living in that culture, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're following his way and you've put your faith in him, you've been born again as a citizen of the kingdom. And following his way and living in his kingdom is to experience a culture that's characterized ultimately by truth. A message of truth that produces unique characteristics like righteousness and justice and mercy and equity and peace and love. But there will be a day when Jesus taught, when he returns, when his kingdom will be geographical. It will be here on earth and his domain of his kingdom and his authority will be over the entire world and all nations subject to his rule. But Pilate didn't think that Jesus Christ was a threat, at least not in a militaristic sense, which is kind of ironic because after Jesus died, his disciples proclaimed him as risen from the dead. And the very roads that the Roman Empire built in their vast empire were used by the disciples of Jesus to advance the message of the kingdom throughout their empire, and it became the dominant religion. See, Rome thought that an empire and a kingdom should be advanced by force. Jesus' kingdom advances by truth. And his followers spread this message on the Roman roads so far that the the Roman people tried to subdue them militaristically. Rome and the emperors of Rome tried to kill Christians. They would be impaled and set on fire. They would be fed to the lions in the Colosseum. But even as military might matched against truth, truth overcame it. And even as military might tried to to subdue truth and kill the messengers of truth, the truth still advanced. Ironically, Pilate doesn't think Jesus is a threat, but not too long after Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity would advance throughout the entire empire. In Pilate and Jesus, we have two people representing two kingdoms. Pilate dismisses the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice, but Pilate said in verse 38, what is truth? In Pilate and Jesus, we have two people representing two kingdoms and two views of the world that I believe are very prevalent in our culture today. We live in a culture today, North America and the Western world, who has certain values and liberties. Values and virtues and liberties like equal human rights and the personal independence of the conscience. And these values and these virtues are indistinguishably and irrefutably connected to the truth of the Christian kingdom of God. Yet, while we want the benefits of the truth of Christianity, like equal human rights, we live in a culture that does, want, does not want to be accountable to the truth of Christianity. 
We want the values and virtues of the truth of the kingdom of God, like justice and mercy and love, but we also want the autonomy of Pilate to define our own way of truth. And this is why Christianity must be understood and is relevant today. Because throughout history, Christian truth has proved to be meaningfully influential wherever it advances. Christian truth has proven to be meaningfully influential wherever it advances, yet dismissing it inevitably causes crisis. This is why Christianity is relevant today. Because we need the truth on which, uh, that we need the truth of the kingdom of God for the society that we live in, for the communities and the relationships that we have, and for our individual souls. So the rest of our message is really gonna try and understand what this means. What is Christian truth and why is it meaningful? Uh, what, what do we really mean by when we say that it causes a crisis? Crisis is actually a kind of strong word. Is a crisis really the result of dismissing Christian truth? Well, let's buckle in because I believe that we're going to learn some things today. It's not every weekend that philosophical discussion comes into the pulpit, but if Jesus and Pilate are discussing the nature of truth, then we need to have the same discussion. So don't glaze over, buckle up, and pay attention, because I believe that if we commit ourselves to understanding these things, it will help us to grasp the basics of our faith, to be able to interact with a skeptical culture, and if you even are a skeptic yourself, I think it'll help understand why Christianity believes and acts the way that it does. So let's talk about the idea of truth, all right? Josh McDowell, who uh, wrote this book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, was discussing this philosophical idea of the correspondence theory of truth. It's a widely understood and accepted belief about what truth is, and he said this, listen carefully. Josh McDowell defines truth as a thought or statement about reality that agrees with reality. A thought or statement about reality that agrees with reality. All right, so let's play a little game here. True or false? All apples are green. Yeah, false, right? We know that that statement does not agree with reality because from our lived experience, there are red apples, right? So it would be true to say some apples are green, but because we know that some apples are also red, it's false to say that all apples are green. All right, let's, let's try this again. Um, true or false? Jason Locke prefers green apples over red apples. Yeah, how would you know, right? <laughs> uh, but that's actually false. I don't like green apples. I don't care how much caramel you put on it, how many sticks you put in it. I, I've never liked green apples. It's, it's not true because it doesn't reflect my lived experience, but that might not be true in your own sense. From your own experience, you might like green apples. Okay, so that was the shallow end, all right? Okay, now we need to dive into the deep end but just answer this question internally in your own mind, all right? True or false? Gender is directly connected to biological sex. So our culture hears that statement and they say, oh, that's a red apple, green apple preference thing, 
right? Like you might prefer that, that gender looks a certain way and it's connected to a certain thing, but that doesn't mean that it needs to be the same for me. That's the way that our culture looks at things, that your truth is not absolute and objective. Truth is subjective and relative always and only to my own experience. But that's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that since reality is defined and created by God, then there is objective and absolute truth about reality and it's revealed in the word of God and in the person of Jesus Christ. See, this is what Christian truth is. Christian truth is the complete revelation of God's nature exclusively in and through Jesus. And as a result, the absolute objective truth revealed through the word of God and in the person of Jesus Christ, it helps us understand objectively who God is, who we are, what this world is like, how we must live in it. And because God is the creator of reality, it's not up for preferential discussion. But it is for our good if we're willing to submit to it. John 14, six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Our culture believes that each individual maintains the unencumbered personal right to define or dismiss truth. And anyone and everyone must accept their choice. Actually, in a manner, our culture has redefined the golden rule. Most people know what the golden rule is, right? You probably know it. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Our culture has reinterpreted and redefined the golden rule to accept any other as you would have any other except you in any way. But the irrefutable reality is that our culture has only come to the place that it is today with its understanding of human rights and personal liberty today because of the foundation of Christian truth. But let's not just take my word for it. Let's listen to some other people who are smarter than me who actually don't really believe in Christianity. This man on the screen is a man named Jurgen Habermas. I met him this week. I met him online this week. Um, I didn't introduce to him. He's from Germany. Jurgen Habermas is a German philosopher, and together with a man named Charles Taylor, Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, these two are considered some of the leading thinkers, leading philosophical thinkers of our world today. No friend of religion, no Christian. But this is what Jurgen Habermas says. Listen carefully. The individual morality of conscience, human rights, and democracy, those things are pretty important, right? The conscience, human rights, democracy, those are pretty important, right? The individual morality of conscience, human rights, and democracy is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. Up to this day, there is no alternative to it. And in the light of current challenges, we must draw sustenance now, as in the past, from this substance. Everything else is idle postmodern talk. And if you want idle postmodern talk, well, we can learn from this man. His name is Frederick Nietzsche. 
Frederick Nietzsche used the uh, atheist who famously said, God is dead. Right? If you don't know Nietzsche, you've probably heard that statement before. And maybe you're the type of person who agrees with Nietzsche. It's like, yep, God is dead. Well, if you really believe God is dead, then you need to follow the logical implication of what that means for us morally. And Nietzsche actually tells us. In his book, The Will to Power, he says this. Frederick Nietzsche says, another Christian concept, no less crazy, has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modern life, the concept of equality of souls before God. This crazy concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. Nietzsche agrees with two things. Number one, human rights is from Christianity. Number two, it's crazy. If you believe there is no God, you have no right to believe that survival of the fittest isn't still the current moral argument. Kevin, do you have your wallet on you? Can I have it? Well, I want it. Why not? You trust me? No, if I took it, what would say that I can't go and spend whatever I want on it and never give it back to you? And we might say, well, like, oh, okay, well, we've agreed as a culture that it's more beneficial to us to, 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 to respect one another, maybe. But if we really believe that we evolved from an amoeba and we really believe we got here by survival of the fittest, we might agree today that it's ethical to love our neighbor, but we have no moral basis to believe that tomorrow it's not ethical for me to eat my neighbor. Why do you have the right to pick the parking spot that you did outside at church today? Why do you have the right to have the money that you think you earned in your bank account? Francis Schaeffer says this, this guy's on the screen here. He said, when I say that Christianity is true, I mean it is true to total reality, the total of what is, beginning with the central reality, the objective truth of the existence of a personal infinite God. Christianity is not just a set of truths, but capital T, truth, truth about all of reality. And holding the reality to that truth intellectually, and then in some way, poor way, living upon that truth, the truth of what is, brings forth not only certain personal results, but also government and legal results. Francis Shaver is one of my favorite authors, and what he is saying is that Christianity is totally comprehensively applied to our lives, and that if you truly hold to Christian truth, it should be saturated into the entire way that you live. But a lot of Christians have a a lot of Christians have a troubled relationship with truth. A lot of Christians treat truth in the same way that they treat their tax documents, right? You know, you need them at least once a year. I got my T4 and I got my charitable receipts and I have last year's audit that I need it, but really I just file it away into the filing cabinet and close it until the government asks for it. And a lot of Christians kind of treat truth like that. Oh, you know, I believe that God created the world. Here, I got that one. Here, I believe in the Trinity. I got that one. Uh, I believe we are creating the image of God. Got that one. And but the way that they live is like they've just put in a filing cabinet. Christianity and Christian truth is less like the tax documents you keep filed away and more like the cash in your bank account that unless you withdraw and use, you will not have food to eat. 
Christians are Christians who don't just hold the truth as a token, but who allow truth to saturate their entire being so that their conduct reflects the life of Jesus. Can you say that about your life? Or do you just hold to truth as some kind of political token that you have that you think is some badge that allows you to look down at others because they don't believe the same thing that you believe? Christian, aren't we saved by grace? Apart for our own works? Aren't we welcomed into God's kingdom not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done? How can we use truth to look down at others when the one who is truth stooped down and served others? Christian truth is the complete revelation of God's nature exclusively in and through Jesus Christ. Well, how is it meaningfully influential? It's meaningfully influential wherever it advances wherever it advances, because accepting truth allows good and abundant life to flourish. Accepting truth allows good and abundant life to flourish. Certainly some people who in the name of Jesus have used Christian truth to oppress others. Certainly people in the name of Jesus and Christianity have abused it for their own benefit. But Christ didn't. What does truth really look like? How does it really allow good and abundant life to flourish when it is actually and genuinely accepted and believed upon? It creates a culture that reflects the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells us what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus says that when we hold to the truth of the kingdom and live on it, we live a blessed life. I don't know how much searching I did on it, but apparently Google thinks that I really want to buy a smartwatch. You know how you know, like you search stuff online and the algorithm and the cookies store all that data and then whether I'm on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube, apparently I really need to buy a smartwatch. But there was actually a time where I did want a smartwatch and I think I was looking it up and uh, advertisers know the kind of life you want to live and, and they market that to you hard right? And, and when I have seen smartwatch commercials, I've seen it and I'm just like, wow, that, that, that is fashionable. I think I would look good in that. Just like that person would look good in that. And I see the health features of smartwatch. This is just a $15 watch on Amazon, by the way. I see the health benefits on health features of smartwatch. I'm just like, wow, maybe I could be more fit if I had that smartwatch. Marketers use people and images like this to show you if you only had this, then you would have the good life. Don't you envy what these people have? In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when the authors of scriptures use the word blessed, that's actually the type of thing they're trying to say. The blessed life the good life, the enviable life, isn't having what all the world has, isn't ambition that reaches to the top of the ladder and gets the highest GPA. No, it's meekness, hungry for righteousness, even being persecuted for righteousness. But our culture hears those things and they think that's backwards. That's not, the, that's not a 
good life? Why would I want to be persecuted for something? I just, our culture really wants comfort and ease, but the reason this is the good, enviable life for you individually, friend, for your family also, and for your culture around us is because when we believe the truth of the kingdom of God and act on the truth of the kingdom of God, it creates an ethic that is others-centered and not self-centered. And when we, like Christ, are focused on others first and not self First, it is, as Jürgen Habermas acknowledged, there's no alternative to the way of prosperity and abundance it can create for individuals and societies. The sense of peace with God and peace in our own mind, goodness gracious, doesn't our culture need that now? And peace with others. There's no substitute for it, but the culture of the kingdom of God that comes by believing and asking on the truth of the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. But when we dismiss it, the crisis starts to be seen. Like putting a pot of water on boil at your home and turning away to work from something else and without knowing it, it's boiled over. Dismissing truth causes a crisis because inevitably it will create compromised and dilapidated morality. That's the crisis of dismissing truth. A compromised and dilapidated morality. Compromised. Because there's nothing holding me back from taking Kevin's wallet. If we just agreed, well, this is good for me now, there's no moral basis for us to say that it's good for me to take it tomorrow compromised because we want our society to be one that is just but if there's no objective truth for right and wrong there's no basis for justice except for force don't we want to live in a culture where if a man is a serial killer and kidnapped eight men in the village in Toronto that that man should be judged don't we want to live in a culture where a man who uh, was distracted driving and ran into a bus with his transport truck and killed many members of a hockey team that that man should be judged? Don't we want to live in a culture that has justice to a young adult who's kidnapped from Markham and tased and held for ransom? Don't we want justice for that? But what basis is for it? See, we want the virtues of Jesus like justice and mercy and love. But if we reject his truth, we also reject his mercy. And if we want the autonomy of Pilate, we end up rejecting the mercy of Jesus and eventually embracing the tyranny of Pilate. See, on a larger scale, if you take this to a societal level, tyranny is always what happens for justice. And it's not like this hasn't been tried before. This experiment, this social experiment of a civilization with no objective truth of God and a desire for human rights, it's been tried before. Soviet Union tried it. Chairman Mao tried it in China. North Korea is trying it right now. And maybe it works if you're willing to sacrifice millions of souls in genocide. And that's a large scale. But back on a smaller scale, what right do you have to pick the parking spot that you picked and for someone else to take it? 
why do you lock your doors at night? If we want the values and the virtues of Jesus, we need his truth and cannot define it by our own. Even Canada understands this. Our government enshrines our human rights in a document called the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It gives us all the freedoms that we believe we're supposed to have, but the first statement, do you know what the first statement of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms says? Whereas Canada was founded on principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. But we don't want the supremacy of God anymore. We are digging away our foundation, but still want the house to stand. Compromised truth, dilapidated truth. You know, like those homes that are listed on realtor.ca that don't have any pictures because you know if you saw the pictures, you would not want to live in that house. If we let a subjective truth go to its final end, that's what our society, that's what our homes would be. Dismissing truth has no small consequences for individual societies and for our souls before God. The humble king turned to the vicious politician and said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So I would ask you, friends, does Jesus have your attention today? My brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who are Christians, I would say to you, if you say that you've accepted the truth and live by the truth, has it saturated your entire life? Listening to Jesus means having integrity in our conduct. Truth defines my faith, my faith informs my conduct, and these are held together like a steel chain that can't be broken, and I am the same whether I'm in public or private, whether I'm at church or at school or at work. Christian, are you living with integrity? See, we say that we believe that sexual fidelity and gender are things that God has absolutely defined. Yet so many Christians do not live by the purity that they say the world should live like. We say there's a standard for gender. We say there's a standard for sexuality. Yet in private, we're just as sexually liberal as everyone else. Jesus says that we need to deny ourselves and pick up our cross, and we say that the culture needs to do that sexually, but I have the liberty to do that, whether I'm single, whether I'm married. What kind of integrity is that? Thank the Lord that God is gracious, but shouldn't we live by our own standard? We say that we're created in the image of God and that we didn't get to the place we are as a species by the survival of the fittest, but that's not the way that you live at work. You trounce over anyone to get to the spot that you deserve to be. That's not that way that it's like at the parking lot at the mall. You'll find the first spot and ream anyone out that tries and get it to you. God is our, we were enemies of God, but he showed love to us. Yet still, when people treat us like enemies, we think we have the right to fight back. What kind of integrity is that? 
Listening to Christ means living with integrity. And also, I think, listening to Christ means, Christian, that you're living, willing to listen to other Christians. I think one of the clearest marks that you, we aren't living with integrity is that we're not willing to listen to other people. That you always think that your way is right, but you don't know that you've got a big log sticking out of your eye the whole time. Listening to Christ means I'm willing to listen to other Christians because we're part of the body of Christ. Don't just let truth be just something that you file away. Let it be the source that defines your life, Christian. And if you're here and you're a skeptic, or I would say this, the crisis of truth and dismissing it isn't just for societies, but it's for our individual souls. We want justice if we want justice, we need to recognize objective truth. But recognizing objective truth inevitably means surrendering personal autonomy to someone else's definition. You see, friend, the basic invitation of Christ to be welcomed into his kingdom is this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. But you might say, I don't know, that's, that's too costly. I don't wanna deny my own way for happiness. I don't wanna deny my own plan for life. I don't wanna deny my own definition of truth. It's too costly. If that's the way that you would think, I would invite you to consider the love of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus. You can deny yourself and pick up your cross because Jesus was nailed to the cross for you. If there's a moral law because there's a moral law giver, but all of us are guilty moral law breakers. We're all spiritual criminals. We're all guilty before God, but the good news is that Jesus in love suffered your guilt in your place when he died on that tree. You may feel like you're rotting in shame because of the wrong that you know that you've done. And it's not just wrong that you've done towards others, friends. It's wrong that you've done ultimately and first towards God. And you maybe feel rotting in shame for the wrong that you've done. But the good news is that Jesus was ridiculed with your shame when he died on that tree in your place. Jesus suffered your guilt because he loves you. Jesus suffered your shame because he loves you. And when you see the love and the extent that love would go, it's motivating to be willing to say, because of this love, because of this mercy, I, I can deny myself. I can follow him. If you recognize you're a sinner, believe that Jesus showed his love for you by dying on the cross. And your guilt will be removed. Your shame will will be covered and you will have a peace that surpasses all understanding that you would not know without it. And then if you're willing then to turn from your way to follow the way defined by Christ, to follow the truth defined by Christ, you will not only have freedom and peace, but you will have joy following his way. It might not be the way that you defined, but it's the way that's good and right and true. Psalm 1611 says, you have made known to me the paths of life. 
In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Yes, friend, it's costly to give up autonomy to follow another person's way. But the result is that you're following someone who loves you and you will have peace and joy and pleasure forevermore following his way. Does Jesus have your attention today? Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I remember, I remember the words of Jesus when he said, if the, the, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And it is the truth of the Son that does set us free. Father, thank you for setting me free. I, Lord, was born in bondage to sin, like all of us were. I lived for so long in bondage to my own sin. Father, thank you that when you opened my eyes to see how glorious Jesus was, you removed the shackles. You showed me a new way, a way of truth. And I admit, Lord, as we all who follow you must admit that it is hard to follow you. It's hard to deny ourselves, but I thank you that it's worth it for the joy and the peace that not only I feel, but when I lived in this other-centered life in the kingdom of God, that we as a community and we as a society can enjoy the virtues of your kingdom like justice and peace and mercy and love. And thank you, Lord God, that we can have this because of your revealed truth. So God, I pray for our church that we would be a church that lives like this. I pray for our church that we would be a church who lives like this amongst Christians and amongst the world. Father, I pray for my friends who, who may not know Christ or who are still asking questions of Christ that your spirit would make clear to them the truth and that they would commit themselves to it and that in you they would find this virtue and values and liberties in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord God, that we have hope that we are not left to ourselves but that we have the hope of abundant life now and eternal life because of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.